This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, Change Your Life. I'm here today answering readers' readers questions. And today I have a question from Emma. She says, Dear Annie, um, I, I've emailed you before and you know that I've already read your book twice. I have you on Audible in my car. Thanks in great part to you um, and some others. I'm now on day 135 of my alcohol-free life and the vast majority of my time I'm absolutely loving it. My life is so immeasurably better, getting more so by the day. I cannot ever see myself drinking alcohol again. And I don't feel that I'm missing out. I feel like I've dodged a bullet and been let out of a prison. There's just one thing that bugs me, and I'd like to find closure on it so that it never comes back to bite me once the fading effect bias kicks in. I see no value in spirits or beer. To my mind, the only reason to drink them was for the buzz, and I'm so over that. However, I struggle with the idea that wine adds nothing to the whole foodie gastronomic experience. I love eating, cooking, eating out. I grow my own veg. I source local sourdough bread. I have four types of butter in the fridge, so you get the picture. For decades, I've taken it as gospel that some varieties of grape go better with certain foods, even while I was acknowledging that I was drinking too much of whatever it was. It's all around me. I have friends who run a Michelin-starred restaurant, friends who have planted a New Zealand vineyard, who run an independent wine shop in my town, whose family business is in the development of a stable of craft beers on the west coast of Scotland, other friends who run an Irish pub and a liquor store in Vancouver. I've eaten some great meals invariably accompanied by either a sommelier recommended bottle or a flight of wines tailored to my tasting menu. Of course, if it was the latter, my recollection of the food would go a little hazy after the starter. I've drunk crap wines and I've drunk good wines and I could absolutely tell the difference. And European humans have drunk wines for millennia. It's such a traditional thing that it must be normal, right? Ah, I'm in a place where even if I think wine can add something to taste-wise to the food, I'm doing without it, and I feel that's a small price to pay for me personally, because if I were to drink again, it would be an act of brutal self-harm. So I'm okay, but I'm ruefully accepting my quest to find something non-alcoholic to drink that will complement the food, and I feel like my quest will be a long one. I've been out to restaurants, had friends around to dinner, had some great meals in the past 135 days that I've thoroughly enjoyed. In fact, now that I think of it, I actually enjoyed the food more because I noticed it more, savored it more, and wasn't oblivious to what was going on in my mouth, yet I still got this cognitive dissonance. Is it truly the emperor's new clothes on a global scale over a millennia help? I don't expect an easy or quick answer, but I would love to hear your take on this. So this has taken me a bit of time to respond to because I think it isn't an easy or quick answer. Um, obviously, we have drink wine as humans for millennia, and it is, it is true that it's it's evolved in a certain way. So I'm not claiming to be a historian, but I did do some research on this, and there's a few different factors at play here. Um, one of the things that I discovered, and again, I don't know how how credible these sources are because they're they're based on history, but that often in ancient sort of Europe in the 1100s and earlier, it was safer to drink wine and fermented beverages than it was to drink the water because the water had so much bacteria in it. And further, the alcoholic beverages were at a much, much lower ratio of alcohol. The fermentation processes were not what they were today. And I actually even remember that in my drinking days when I first started drinking, 
you could find wines for nine, ten percent alcohol, and then by the time I stopped drinking, you could find wines for fifteen, sixteen percent alcohol. I know that's true with craft beer too. Beer used to be three point two, four, five percent, and now you can find beers with nine, ten percent alcohol. So, you know, as we know, alcohol is addictive. People are increasing the level of alcohol in the beverage to sell more beverages. So over time, things have gotten much, much more alcoholic. And so it used to be that people were from from my research, and again, I can't say that this is verifiably true, but people were drinking fermented beverages as a safety measure with food. So that obviously makes sense that it became completely intertwined with this whole experience of eating since the very beginning of time. And of course, there is the benefit of in the moment, alcohol gives you a sense of euphoria. It's an upper and a downer. So you have a 30 minute up and these nice feelings, um, sort of tipsy feelings, if you will, for two to three hours of the depressant aspect of alcohol kicking in when your blood alcohol is on on you know going away as it's fading as the alcohol is leaving your blood then you start to feel uneasy and uncomfortable and um, tired and all of these feelings you know your body releases adrenaline and cortisol as alcohol leaves your body and these things uh, don't feel great so we reach for the next glass of wine to continue on the upswing because when your blood alcohol is rising you feel good when it's going down, you don't feel as good and you trade one hour of rising for two to three hours of falling from my research. So I think that very quickly people say, oh, well, this feels nice too. And then it became completely intertwined. So I think there's a lot of history here to unpack. But equally, I don't think that no matter what is happening here, if alcohol enhances the taste of food or if it doesn't enhance the taste of food, the question becomes, why is it so emotional? Because there's got to be other things in life and in your life in specific that actually enhance the taste of food um, that you wouldn't be emotional about giving up. So you said you have four types of butter in the fridge, which is <laughs> super cool. But if you had to give up butter, would you go because all of a sudden you, in your words, butter was an act of reckless self-harm. Butter was doing something to your brain and body where it was causing you to make bad decisions, causing you to, you know, have memories erased, causing you not to enjoy your food as much, um, causing you miserable hangovers in the morning. All of a sudden, butter was something that was destroying your life. And all of a sudden you had to give up butter. Now, butter is a pretty important staple. I know in my house, in my cooking, I use a lot of butter. but I would be able to make peace without lasting cognitive dissonance with giving up butter because there's no addictive aspect. There's no tiny part of my brain that's saying, feed me, feed me, feed me butter, you know, because there isn't that aspect of alcohol is addictive. It stimulates our pleasure centers on a far more artificial level than normal things. And that's the feeling we get addicted to. It's also the feeling that ends up stealing all our joy in the long run because our brains try to maintain homeostasis. So, I just want you to think of that. And maybe it's not butter. Maybe it's ice cream. Maybe it's something else. But you'd be able to find a substitute. And you might be bummed about it. You might not be happy about it. Um, but you wouldn't have a lasting emotional dissonance about it for years. It wouldn't be something that you're out at a meal and you're kind of feeling like, oh, you know, you just pretty much make peace with it. I mean, I had to give up eggs for about four years. I was massively allergic to them after the birth of my second son. And I eat eggs all the time. It was my favorite source of protein. I absolutely loved eggs. But I did not, once I eliminated from my diet, if I couldn't have something with eggs in it, it wasn't a massively emotional experience. So I guess that's something to consider. Like, where is this on the scale? Is this different 
a little bit than if you had to give up something else that you really think enhances the foodie experience. Um, and then I think what you said about, you know, you're not going to do it because of self-harm, that's really power, paramount. So even if it is that, you know, it's completely for the taste and you're completely missing it, um, knowing that you're not going to do it, then okay. So the, not everything might be in this pretty little package, but it's really important to sort of know why you're making your choices and why you're making your decisions. The two other things I want to say is, you know, your very first taste of wine before you acquired a taste and acquiring a taste is by definition becoming more or less immune to the taste so that you can so that you actually enjoy it. Like uh, there's lots of stuff that my first taste of it, I didn't like it, but then eventually I did enjoy it. So like I hated mushrooms at first and then I learned to love mushrooms. Um, but think back to that very first taste and, and decide, okay, was, was that like this pivotal, amazing thing or not? Um, and then interestingly, there was a study done and it was done over 6,000 wine drinkers. And it was done by the American Association of Wine Economists. They, they studied more than 6,000 wine drinkers and they did completely blind taste tests. And wine drinkers were absolutely unable across the board to distinguish expensive wine from cheap wine. In fact, the majority ended up claiming to prefer the wines that were uh, cheap and, and not as good compared to the wines that were good. So that's just something to consider um, that, you know, actually factually, while we think we can distinguish it, and I think we do that to ourselves, you know, to feel good, um, most people couldn't actually do it in a blind taste test, which I found very, very fascinating. Um, and then I, I would like to say one last thing that, you know, the thing that's harmful for you, the thing that's causing the problems, the thing that's causing health issues, the thing that, like, as you say, is this radical form of, of, um, you know, self-harm is really the alcohol. So the wine is grape juice, but then when it's fermented and it becomes alcohol and the alcohol is the poison. So I, I guess there is a distinction there to understand that, um, you know, there, there might possibly, we might be really good at some point. We can make decaf coffees now that taste almost just like coffee. And I know that there are lots of marketing dollars going into making non-alcoholic beverages, non-alcoholic wines to make them really, really good. And I think that we can get there because if there's enough of a demand, which there is starting to be such a massive demand for non-alcoholic drinks because there's such a massive increase in the number of people who are sort of becoming more mindful of their health and realizing that the alcohol itself isn't what they love. And so it's the whole fermenting process, the whole, you know, uh, oaking and barreling process, but then they're taking out the alcohol, which is actually the fermented thing. And so at some point, I don't have a lot of experience with, I've actually not tried a non-alcoholic wine, but at some point, I would believe that we would be able to, if you keep looking, find a really good vintage of non-alcoholic wine. Um, and so I would, I would suggest trying that if, if this is something that's really, really sticking you. But anyway, I guess just to say, um, it's a great question. It was a tough one to answer because it's a good point. Like there, it's been around for millennia and it is something with, you know, the whole food experience. But I guess really ask yourself, did you love it in the beginning? And is it truly, more or less of an emotional attachment than if you had to give up something else that you consider to be absolutely vital, like perhaps butter. Um, where is that emotional attachment? And then you can kind of uncover what's really going on. And then just and know that, you know, statistically and research shows that we're not actually able to distinguish wine. So um, it may or may not be true, but it is a fascinating question. Thank you so much for asking. Thank you everybody for tuning in. 
Let me ask you a question. What is better than change? <laughs> Lasting change, of course. And if you've had trouble making change stick, either with alcohol or in any other area of your life, you are in for a treat. I created the 100 Days of Lasting Change to ensure that we don't just change for a moment, but we truly transform for a lifetime. And this program is so close to my heart. Thousands of people have been through it and their results are incredible. But don't take my word for it. Check it out at thisnakedmind.com forward slash 100 days. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.